Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 316 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, today's episode is brought to you by ProMedia Fire and Lifeway. And I think you're going to be really thrilled you tuned in today. Uh, So for those of you who are subscribers, uh, this is the drill, right? Every time we launch an episode, you get it for free. If you're new and you really enjoy this, make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple and Spotify seem to own most of the market there these days. Uh, But wherever you happen to listen to podcasts, we are there and you can subscribe for free. And it's a great way to get an injection every week of Leadership Fuel. We release an episode every Tuesday and then a couple times on a Thursday every month for about six. And I just try to bring you the best behind the scenes leadership conversations out there, period. And uh, man, I love today's episode. John Mark Comer is a pastor and author and also a podcaster, his This Cultural Moment podcast with Mark Sayers is one of my favorite that I discovered last year. Uh, We talk about that. We also talk about the uh, really move in America to post-Christian culture and all the problems that people seem to have with time management today. He's got a brand new book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And we talk about how that can improve your life, your leadership, your spirituality, and so much more. I love this conversation with John Mark Comer. I think you will too. So Thrive Church runs about seven or 800 people in attendance during the weekends. And uh, two of their staff members were handing off all the creative and website needs, but the most talented creative then decided to leave. You ever found yourself in that problem where you're like, uh-oh, uh-oh, I lost, lost my best person? Instead of hiring another internal staff member, their pastor decided to become a client at ProMedia Fire. And he purchased a media bundle to cover all the graphics, the social, the video every month. In addition, he got a wildfire plan, which took care of their website updates, all the digital marketing to reach people. And instead of hiring one additional staff member that was overwhelmed with their growth, Uh, Instead, the pastor hired the entire team at ProMedia Fire and helped them break the thousand barrier and the money they saved in salary, they're putting into digital marketing. If you're curious about solutions like that, guess what? You get a 10% discount off for life of all plans at ProMediaFire.com forward slash carry. So if you're looking to really improve your online presence and who isn't, guys, it's 2020, uh, head on over to ProMediaFire.com forward slash carry to learn more and get 10% off for life. It is media support for a fraction of the price of hiring a team member. Now, back in August, I shared with you, I was working on a few exclusive courses that are only going to be offered at Ministry Grid. Hey, you got one more week or so to take advantage of that. These courses cover common leadership challenges, how you can overcome obstacles in your church ministry or organization. And this is really cool. Okay. If you complete any of these courses on Ministry Grid, which are already free, their team will send you a copy of my latest book, Didn't See It Coming, as a gift, no strings attached. So head on over to ministrygrid.com forward slash carry. Check out the free courses I did that are only available there. And while you're there, check out their full volunteer training library that you can use at your church. Uh, My church connects us, loves the stuff that Ministry Grid does. And so go to ministrygrid.com forward slash carry. Hey, before we jump into the interview with John Mark Comer, last month was a really fun month on the podcast. We passed 10 million downloads and you know that we did 
a contest. So at the end of this uh, episode, I'm going to announce the winners of that contest. And I am so excited because, well, a whole bunch of you won Starbucks, but then we're going to fly five listeners to Nashville for a day of leadership development with me in person. It's going to be great. So I'll announce that toward the end of the show. Well, anyway, without further ado, here is my conversation with pastor and author John Mark Comer. John Mark, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, absolutely great to have you. It's fantastic to be along. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I have loved your podcast, This Cultural Moment. I know you've got a couple of other podcasts as well. And as I was sharing with you before we started recording, I uh, binge listened. People have been telling me, you got to listen to this show. You got to listen to this show. I'm like, I will, I will, I will. And then in the spring, I just binge listened to the whole thing. Um, I kind of want to start at a bizarre place, which is the secular salvation schema. You did a whole episode on that. I'd love for you to kind of unpack what that looks like, because as soon as I heard you and Mark Sayers unpack it, I'm like, that is 100% what I see going on in culture right now. Yeah. Okay. So at, at some point you're asking me to be Mark Sayers, who, for those of you that have not listened to the podcast, is... I would say he's the other half, but he, he's, he's the other 90%. I'm the 10%. So <laughs> um, I, I will do my best. I think that started, this is such a classic, like 2019 kind of moment. But uh, I saw he, he posted like one random little thing on his Instagram story of like, you know, the salvation schema or something like that. I can't, can't even remember what he called it. I think he called it post-Christian personal renewal model or something like that. Yeah. And he just had this like little thing that he posted on his Instagram story, one post. I'm like, oh my gosh, we have to, we have to do an episode around that. That is, it just instantly kind of rang true with my felt experience in Portland, you know? And I think the gist of it is just that, you know, human, the human person, regardless of religious orientation or anti-religious orientation, can't escape this inner drive for Christians call salvation. It goes by all sorts of other names, mm -hmm. you know? So I think what Mark did is he just kind of ran the typical Christian, you know, kind of paradigm of creation, fall, sin, redemption, salvation, heaven through the kind of secular lens. What does that look like in a secular worldview? And so, you know, Eden or creation becomes like your inner child, your inner self. You hear a lot of that language of like, the romanticization of children, which is, I think, tied to the decline in family marriage and child rearing, because so many of the people that say this are single. You know what I mean? Those that are parents don't have the same romantic view of children, you know, yeah, because yeah. you actually know what children are like. God bless them. <laughs> but they're even more narcissistic than adults. They just have less power to do damage with it, you know. Correct. But there's this bizarre kind of Western secular romanticization of kind of the inner child and your inner self. And it's kind of this, you know, it's, it's tied to, I think, victimization in our culture and the desire to kind of blame others for what's wrong inside of us and attribute everything to wounding at some level, you know? So there's this kind of idea that, you know, early on, I was this like beautiful inner child. I was not wounded. I was not corrupted by my environment or my family or this, that, or the other religion or whatever. But there's this kind of like, and it's an Eden moment. It's a Genesis one and two kind of moment mm -hmm. in the psyche of, you know, my inner child. Fall then becomes all sorts of things. It becomes trauma. It becomes your wound. It becomes 
externally given identities, meaning anything that is put on you from external is now like, because everything since Freud is about the internal. So it becomes, you know, any kind of expectations on you based on your gender or your ethnicity or your social class or your nationality or your career in your religion, it would be a classic example of that. Anything that doesn't arise from your inner self is this kind of oppression that has come upon you. And even binding commitments, you know, be it marriage, be it duty, be it whatever, these things become the fall, the condition that we're in and the main problem. Sin then becomes like not feeling happy or not feeling good about yourself or feeling any kind of shame, you know. And salvation then becomes rediscovering your inner self, which is in everything from soul cycle to yoga to self-help to Hollywood. It's like that whole like find your inner center, speak your truth, rediscover who you are, the obsession with Enneagram and personality theories and all. Of course, there's some good stuff in all of this. But this is in a salvation model becomes like, how do I get back to that inner self, that inner child that's been corrupted through other people telling me who I need to be or what I need to do. Um, you know, that philosopher, Jung Chul Han, who's a German-Korean philosopher, so fascinating kind of perspective. He, he calls human beings um, entrepreneurs of themselves and how in this whole, and he, t- he writes about how we've moved from a disciplinary society to an achievement society, meaning 100, 200 years ago, we were a disciplinary society, which was governed by no, like this is what you can't do. based on your gender or your ethnicity or where you live or your class and taken to the extreme, it produces all sorts of neurosis. This was the breeding ground for Freud. But we live literally in the opposite, what he calls an achievement society, which is governed by, yes, you can do pretty much anything you want to do, be pretty much anything you want to be as long as it doesn't, you know, quote, harm other people. And that's exhausting. And it's leading (laughs) to burnout and anxiety and depression He writes about the rise of depression like grows in tandem with the rise of achievement culture because the depressed person is basically thinking, you know, nothing is possible. And he has this great line. You can only think that in a culture that says everything is possible. And so the depressed person is tired of having to become himself or herself and the anxiety of what if I pick the wrong self to become? What if I don't find my inner self? What if I don't find my inner truth? You know, and then he writes about how it's giving way to a doping society as we're just escaping into drugs and alcohol and Netflix and work and social media to just medicate against the pain. So this is, I think, very much the moment we're in. And then heaven, you know, in a secular schema just becomes pleasure, happiness, the good life, Mm. drinking good wine around a nice table somewhere beautiful and warm with beautiful people. You know, this becomes the heaven with no, no restrictions, no binding commitments, no external authority on you, just free to kind of be this idealized, you know, self in the sunset that becomes, that becomes kind of the ache that we're, that we're aching for. Such a great summary. And That's my attempt to summarize Mark Sayers. I just want to go on record saying you started with a question that is not is not out of my brain. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, it's pretty amazing, John Mark, because when I heard you and Mark talk about that, uh, my whole ministry and kind of culture flashed before my eyes. And right. you can see that particularly in millennial or Gen Z culture, that that's very yes. much sort of the thing. I don't pray. I do meditation. I do yoga. Yeah. I'm into self-discovery. I'm into like no pain, no harm, rediscovering yep. who I really am. And of course, that's the gospel without the gospel, right? Basically totally. is, is hey, what yeah. it is. 
And there's just enough truth in all of that to appeal to that, to your soul, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it, all of that comes to the church. It's not like secular people think that way. Followers of Jesus think another way. There, There's so much, you know what I mean? There's all this overlap in the middle. That almost passes for Christianity in some circles. Really. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we deal with that on a, on a daily basis, you know? What are some of the realities? I mean, is that kind of a, a good summary of the, the dominant mindset you would see or the dominant cultural uh, milieu that you have in Portland where you are? Oh, yeah. I mean, 100%. I mean, it just, yes. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I heard somebody say, speak your truth, you know, mm. which is such a fascinating, just religion aside, case study and just logic like that. Yeah. It doesn't even make sense. Once yeah, you put yeah. the pronoun your in front of the noun truth, you have lost all, you're no longer using the Webster's dictionary, you know? Um, but man, you hear that all the time. And yeah, I just need to find myself. I just need to break. I just need to discover who I really am. And so much, I mean, the word oppression is, it, which has a very legitimate usage is so overused that it really is any form of external norm, authority, morality, vision that is in any way like imposed upon somebody either coercively or non-coercively is thought of as oppression if it comes from somebody else and repression if it comes from inside your own person. And that, that is a radically different way to think about thousands of years of the best of human wisdom and tradition across religions, across spiritualities, across traditions, across ages and continents and ethnicities and genders, to think that way about the thousands of years of cumulative wisdom is a very new phenomenon. And I think it is really wreaking havoc. I don't think it's leading to the life that it claims it's leading to. You know, how do you see the symptoms of that expressing themselves in people's lives in the context in which you minister? Like, obviously, everything, everything we believe produces fruit, uh, positive yes. or negative. So what are some of the symptoms you see from that narrative uh, really becoming the dominant narrative in the culture that you're in? I, th- I think the main two things I see is it's leading, it's leading to loneliness and it's leading to emotional unhealth, be that anxiety, depression, mental illness, relational dysfunction. You know, it's interesting how the secular thing takes you to hyper individualism, you know, to say the whole because you're you reject any kind of norm, any kind of, you know, communal vision of life together. And it's all you do you be who you want to be, do what you want to do, speak your truth. So all of that takes you into individualism. It's so tied to the progressive sex vision, which is. I mean, sex in our city is a soteriology. It is a doctrine of salvation. It's not like something that you do or some people are into. It's made to, it's made to be way better than it actually is. And yeah, people yeah. literally look to sexuality for like a kind of salvation, a kind of healing of the soul and meaning and right. purpose in life. And so that's tied because the progressive sex ethic doesn't work well with like, I've been married to the same person for 62 years and we have 19 grandkids, you know, that's not where that narrative leads you most of the time. And so the result is just a staggering amount of loneliness. Like I, you know, I live right in the city and it's bizarre more and more like how infrequently you see children. It's like, you don't see old people and you don't see young people. You see all these like, 20 to 45 single people or maybe couples 
with and their dog. Barely any children. Yeah, with their dog. Dogs are literally all over the place. Dogs you know? are the new children. I really am convinced in the next generation. I mean, dogs are the new kids. A, there's even a weird, yeah, and I think that the rise in dogs, which grows in tandem to secular culture, is like totally tied into secularism and the breakdown of the family. I think it's all like goes together. And there's even a weird thing where like, if you walk into a room with a child, people will look at you like, how dare you pollute the earth or make global warming even worse or whatever, <laughs> you know? And, and I mean, seriously, that's a thing. People are like the best thing oh, you I know. can possibly do the environment is not have any more kids, you know? I like, live near Toronto. So, I get it. Yeah, you get it. And then, you know, if you walk in with a dog, like you can walk into a restaurant practically with a dog and oh, yeah. look, it's like you- Or on an like airplane. Children used yeah. to be in a church or on an airplane. Oh my gosh, don't even get me started about the airplane. <laughs> So it's, it drives me nuts. I'm a real follower. I'm like, yeah, that is not an emotional support yeah, animal. I, I, I was going to go there and then I thought, no, there's a lot of people listening. But yes, it's not an emotional support animal. It's I'm not sorry. An, I, I, I understand there's a place I'm with for that. you, John Mark, 100%. Not like four dogs on every plane. There's no way, you know. Yeah. My headphones oh, yeah. are my emotional support um, <laughs> animal. That's what they this are. This podcast is your emotional support. <laughs> you got um, it. Oh, yeah. But it is that whole mindset, right? I mean, you're getting right into post-Christian culture. And I've always said as a Canadian, when I go to Portland, when I go to Seattle, when I go to California, I'm like, oh, yeah, I get it here. Uh, When I go to the Bible Belt, I'm like, whoa, this is like, this is another culture. But you are the future of America, whether people like it or not. Yeah, well, or at least a future. I mean, I think the Trump election showed there's going to be multiple, you know, there's a secular, there's another post-Christian reality that's on the right, that's less urban coastal elite and more rural, more small town, but it's still thoroughly, I mean, Trump is a great example. That was a good wake up call for a lot of us, because I think the progressive narrative is, you know, I think about that word progressive. We are ahead of everybody else. So the conservatives are behind trying to conserve the past. We're ahead, and it's this evolutionary view of human history that the human species is evolving and moving forward toward this utopian future where we finally, you know, throw off the shackles of religion and tradition and gender and all this stuff, and everybody's equal and everybody is just wealthy and drinking their wine and having a good time and walking their dog and getting along. And, you know, Canada is the future, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so... Um, so, you know, that, that's why the Trump election and, you know, Brexit, uh, as of recording this podcast today, which is the big yeah. election in England, it's, it's so jarring to somebody in a Portland or New York or in LA because there's such an arrogance, such a presumption, such a sense of superiority and such a sense of we are the future that you can't fathom that there are people that see your future and see your life and opt out and say, no, we don't want that or can't be a part of it for economic mm-hmm. reasons or social reasons. So I think the Trump election showed us there's a there's another version of post-Christian culture that isn't urban coastal elite that is in Arkansas in a small town or wh- whatever the equivalent would be, you know, in in Canada. And I think it's very important that we take that seriously and give it attention and compassion, you know. I've had this conversation uh, and I don't want to misquote him, but with David Kinnaman just numerous times offline but I think David would agree, and David, if you don't, I'm sure you'll text me, but that <laughs> that the the attitudinal differences you're describing in Portland, like that that mindset, the secular salvation schema, the the whole like children are a, you know, we don't do children, yeah. we do dogs, that kind of thing. 
I think he might argue, and certainly that I'll, I'll take responsibility for this insight, but that the data would suggest that that's actually somewhat true generationally, independent of geography. That sure, there were some 28-year-olds who are part of what you described as the Trump movement, but there's probably more 28-year-olds, 35-year-olds that would uh, buy into what you started this podcast with, that, that in, to a certain extent, uh, the next generation feels a little more like Portland than it does like Alabama. Is that fair? Or would you say that's different yeah, from what you're that's, experiencing? Again, that's maybe over my pay grade, but that is based on antidotal evidence only. That is absolutely my yeah, impression. Yeah. I don't go to the South a lot for, um, not in a disparaging way, but similar thing. Like when I go to Toronto or London or Vancouver, BC, I feel like, oh, this is just different accent, same thing, you know? Yeah. Um, when I go to Atlanta or I went to Florida this last year, I mean, I literally am like, what planet am I on? I don't even, I don't even know what world I'm living. It's And they probably ask the same question of you, right? It's like, yeah, where oh, are I'm you sure. from? Wow. And, and Portland in many ways defines itself against America, you know, mm-hmm. and it wants to be basically Scandinavia or Canada. It wants to be <laughs> this kind of, you know, European kind of. Scandinavian thing. So th- th- that's very much in the ethos of our city. But yeah, that's been my experience. I've had, in fact, because I've started this little podcast with Mark, which is so funny, I'm not like the post Christian expert. I'm just in a post Christian city trying to make sense of it. Hence why I started that podcast to like just ask questions. And I wanted to get his framework deeper into my nervous system. So it would just come out of me, you know? So, but now it's like everywhere I go, people kind of want me to talk about the post Christian thing and you're in Portland and all that stuff. So, you know, I'll inevitably do a lecture or a Q&A or whatever. And I've had this experience so many times where I'll do some little talk on post-Christian culture and a number of pastors in the South or and more, or sometimes, you know, something California or other places that are a little bit more conservative will come up to me and basically say, yep, that's not a thing. And I had the same experience when I was in Ireland, you know, just anywhere kind of in that more conservative Bible Belt kind of world. That's not a thing. We're not there yet. Our thing is totally different. And basically say, we don't need to, to think about these things right now. And then uh, the youth pastors will wait around, <laughs> kind of like waiting in the wings. I'm like, and how then, old was that feedback? Because I can tell like, you. Yes. And it's like, it's normally 40 or 45 and up. And then, then the youth pastors come up. And they basically say in a very kind, gracious way, it's absolutely happening here everywhere you go under, say, age 28. And the second, but the churches don't feel it because when you have 5,000 people in your mega church coming strong, tithing, going great, conservative, all the stuff, and you don't notice, oh my gosh, where are all the 23 year olds? Where is everybody? Yeah. And because, and that's all I think mostly due to digital technology. You, in order to experience this, you used to have to actually get in your car and drive to and move to Toronto or New York or urban Portland or San Francisco or LA if you wanted to actually get exposed to this whole worldview. Now all you have to do is open your phone in the morning. Yep. No, I think that's 100% true. The other thing that's really interesting is the elimination of accents. This is happening in Europe. This is happening in the United States. Isn't that sad? It is kind of sad. But uh, I remember traveling through Germany and because of mass media, uh, you know, you, you'd be for hundreds of years, you would have a village accent or a provincial accent. And now what's happening is if you listen to a 23 year old who grew up in Atlanta or a 23 year old who grew up in L.A. or a 23 year old who grew up uh, in New England, they sound an awful lot alike. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Now, what we don't know yet, uh, what I don't have a good handle on, and maybe Kinnaman's done the research here, is Gen Z. Because there's going to be, you know, Gen Z is just now entering our churches from the perspective of like leaders and yeah, being people an that adult. interacting yeah. at an adult level. Yeah, and they've been in our church for many years, but now they're, you know, 20 years old, 21 years old, whatever that cutoff year is. And so now they're leading worship and they're leading groups and they're leading ministries. And there are some significant shifts there. And that's where I'd be really interested to see what happens because there's bound to be a, a backlash against the progressive narrative is so um, emotionally and socially stifling and shame based and angry and exhausting and hyper politically correct. It's like the worst of religion, 1980s religious conservative culture. You know, Mark said that at one point, he's like, you know, the church lady and the symptoms who's just like always <laughs> grumpy and critical and like you know, mind your manners and like jumping and pouncing on you the moment you make a little mistake. That's what the progressive, you know, woke even left is. And that's not a, it's not a play at, at racial sensitivity. That's just what it's become is this, yeah. like, you're scared to say anything. You're scared to, to be, you know, have your head lopped off in shame or whatever. So I think there's bound to be a backlash, you know, just this year, we're seeing the first, there was a massive, I could not quote the exact stats to you. Andrew Sullivan's been reporting on it recently, but there's been a massive shift in Gen Z over the last 12 months in views on LGBTQ, in particular on transgenderism. Really? Massive reversal of approval ratings. And um, so Gen Z is quietly not responding well to the critical gender theory, gender fluidity thing that's being rammed down to everybody's throats right now. So that, that we're only a year or two years into that trend. I'm really interested to see where that goes. Well, and from what I've seen too, and again, uh, David, you should be in on this conversation because he has the actual data. But anyway, uh, what I have seen is more financially conservative, like very, a little more entrepreneurial in Gen Z, financially conservative, debt is bad. Um, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to live a life where I'm financially destitute, and also sexually more conservative. Sexual activity actually dropping. Uh, sexual promiscuity yes. dropping. So there, there so are some generational it's not, differences. It's not sexually conservative, though. Unfortunately, my understanding of the data is it's not that like people are getting back into purity culture. It's right. pornography and the inability to have interpersonal relationships. That's so, that's yeah, fair. so sexuality is way down for Gen Z, but it's partially due to porn. Like, why go mm. to all the trouble of sex when you have an iPhone? And two, to seduce somebody requires the capacity to make small talk and yeah. to flirt and to seduce them. And that requires interpersonal skills, which is like, that's the one, like the most terrifying trend, I think, for Gen Z is the way that social media and text messaging have almost incapacitated some of them and the ability just to like talk and say, hey, and make small talk and go up to somebody and flirt. So unfortunately, so I think it's good that promiscuity is down, but unfortunately I think the reason is not off on that one. Yeah, yeah. 100% sure. Yeah. Um, no, this is really helpful. And I think, I think there are a lot of people who really don't understand how profoundly culture has changed, how yeah. much that impacts our worldview, our values, our beliefs, the way we respond to situations. And I have just found your voice and, and Mark Sayer's voice to be so helpful with that. So I would encourage people to check that out. Now, 
Shifting gears a little bit, John Mark, you wrote a fantastic book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, uh, which I would recommend as a read for those of you watching on YouTube. It's right here. Uh, It's extremely well written. You're a great writer, um, very engaging, funny, but really profound as well. So I want to talk to you about something you allude to in the book, but don't uh, spend a lot of time drilling down on, and that is your time at a rapidly growing megachurch where you were the pastor, uh, a life that you actually walked away from. Can you talk about to the leaders listening and their leaders in the church space, business space, you know, entrepreneurs who are like, I feel the crushing demands of leadership on me every single day. That was your experience starting out young in uh, church world. Can you walk us through what that was like and what happened? Yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, yeah, so planted, so I grew up in mega church culture, which is an interesting thing. I don't know if this stat is reliable, but I've read that in 1970, or 1970s, there were only 10 churches in the entire continental U.S. over the size of 2,000 people. I have read that if stat that, too. Yeah, if that stat is true, I grew up at one of those 10 churches. Wow. In um, the Bay Area of California, my dad was like, you know, played in a rock band kind of thing, came to faith in his 20s in the Jesus movement at a Billy Graham crusade, went down the aisle at a Billy Graham crusade, and um, a few years later ended up, you know, as a pastor at this megachurch in the Bay Area. And so that's what I was born into in 1980 and grew up in, and it's all I ever knew. And then my dad and I actually planted a church together when I was 23, And yeah, it grew really fast. It grew by about a thousand people a year for about seven years straight. And a couple years in, my dad and I changed roles and I kind of took over the lead pastor position. And, you know, at first, the first couple of years were just a wild ride. I mean, they were exhausting, but so fun. And that plays to all the good part of you that just wants to see a city come alive with Jesus and a, a church flourish. And it plays to all of your ego and ambition and adrenaline addiction and, you know, attempt to escape from the pain of your own wound, all of that stuff. And so I think my mind wasn't so much there those first few years. It was just, you know, the working insane hours, getting this thing up and running. And then, you know, a number of years in, I just began to grow more and more tired and, you know, you can only live that way for a few years at most before either you have a nervous breakdown or you just slip into this kind of flat, numb mode where the only emotions you really have left are anger and anxiety and everything mm-hmm. else is just kind of swallowed up by the the machine, you know. <laughs> and I began to increasingly, you know, to play on Jesus words, gain a church and lose a soul. And mm-hmm. um, and it was a, it was a real profound time for me of not just emotional kind of exhaustion and burnout. It was a much deeper kind of early midlife crisis for me around myself, identity, leadership, who am I, and around a little bit of an existential crisis around church and which I guess is a a coming of age, right? For a millennial pastor, Mm -hmm. but, and what is church and what are we doing here? And what is this really accomplishing And um, those three things of kind of the emotional burnout, the spiritual, I'd really stalled out in my transformation. And if anything was in regression, not progression. And then the the kind of ecclesiological, like, what is this saying about church? Those three crises all kind of came together in this perfect storm about six, seven years ago. 
um, where everything kind of not blew up like at an external level, but blew up at an internal level in my heart. Yeah. So you just got to the point where you were kind of imploding, which I think a lot of us in leadership uh, can relate to. And by the way, we're back with fresh audio now halfway through this interview. So you and I did a quick reset going, oh, shoot, our default settings got ruined. So hopefully this is a little more intelligent than the the first half uh, audio wise. But uh, back into the merits of the conversation. So I'm curious, John Mark, would you say that a lot of church pastors or even leaders who are um, leading large organizations, is your assessment of life in a large organization descriptive or prescriptive? In other words, do you think what happened to you is unique or do you think if you're leading at a certain level, that kind of pressure is just inherently unbearable? Um, I definitely don't think it's prescriptive. Prescriptive, so I'm not. Okay. I, I don't. You know, I'm not remotely. I have no advocacy. Like every mega church pastor needs to resign right now right, and right. you know, go do a smaller church or whatever. That's definitely not my take. Um, I th- I think that there are. I think a lot of it isn't. People want to blame the blame the mega church for everything because it's yes. an easy target. It's low hanging yeah. fruit. Like, you know, when the Hybels scandal broke a year ago or whatever, and we're all watching this church implode and all of these inner dynamics come to the surface in, you know, the New York Times and all this stuff. I remember listening to a podcast from this guy I love and a wonderful guy, but he basically was just shredding. This is the problem with the mega church and its leadership structure and the CEO thing. And I was just chuckling, one, because, you know, Willow was known around the world for, like, its leadership structure, you know, and two, because there was a church in Portland of 120 people that was the antithesis. It was led by a professor who's an intellectual, was right in the city. It was anti-mega, anti-big, and they literally were having the exact same thing play out, but nobody was reading about it because it was 120 people, you know? Yep. And yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking, man, the, the problem here, we want to blame everything on, well, this is the megachurch. Megachurches often have way better systems, way more accountability, way more you know, integration than small churches do um, at some level. I, I think – and that's not to say that systems don't matter and sizes of churches don't mm. matter and that there aren't acute dangers in large churches. But I think the main problem is, is, a, is a spiritual formation one. And it doesn't matter yeah. what structure you have or what accountability you have in place, how good your board or elders are. If you have people that don't have Christ-like character, it will implode at some point. It's just only a matter of time. And the best structures can do is mitigate against the implosion, not stop it, you know? Mm-hmm. So nothing, you know, I mean, Willard has this great line that, that I think was normally applied to politics, which is absolutely true, but I think people often apply it to leadership culture too, where we want to design a system that's so airtight, people no longer have to be good. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think the reality is if people aren't good, there's no good system. You know, systems mm-hmm. are made up of people and, and the system is only as healthy as its least good or least emotionally healthy person, be that a small business or a mega church or a nation, you know, uh-huh. no system. And, and that's not to deep downplay systems. I'm a systems guy. I'm a strategy guy. I'm an INTJ in the Myers-Briggs. I love all that stuff. I just think that, man, the megachurch is it's low-hanging fruit. It's easy to slam and critique and point fingers at. Um, but I think the, the problem is actually much deeper than size of church. And, and with megachurch, say, there's two different ways that people 
use that phrase. One is just the size of church that is, Mm -hmm. you know, 2000 and up or whatever. And I honestly have no issue with that. In fact, I think I like Tim Keller's phrase of a gospel ecosystem in a city. And I think that a church needs, I'm sorry, a city needs different types and sizes and strategies and traditions of church to like actually fill, not just to reach more people as the saying goes, but just to fill in the kingdom of God in that city. And, you know, there are things that mega churches do incredibly well that our church can't do or small churches definitely can't do and vice versa. There are things that house churches just nail that no mega church could ever, you know, touch. And so we just need, I think, a wider respect. The problem, at least in America, is that we don't celebrate a wide enough bandwidth of types of churches and types of leaders. We tend to only celebrate the big or the cool or the sophisticated. So, And the other way of thinking about the word megachurch is as a way of doing church. Um, I remember reading a blog post years ago, and I forget the the author, but he defined megachurch by three three attributes. One, it's Sunday-centric. Two, it's personality-driven. And three is what he called consumer-oriented programming. And Sunday-centric meaning if I asked you, hey, tell me about your church, Uh you instantly tell me about Sunday, what the experience is. Well, we meet in this building, and it's like this, and this is what the music is like. You don't actually talk about the church. You talk about the event. Two, it's personality oh, I love my pastor, or we have, you know, so-and-so's our worship leader, or whatever. And three, consumer-oriented programming is a kind of cynical way of saying young moms group, and high school group, and young professionals group, and singles group, and singles from 25 to 30, and singles from 35 to 40, you know, like where it's just like attracts like, not all of which is bad. I have a high value for stage-based, you know, apprenticeship to Jesus, but that, and that if you, that's what you mean by mega church, Sunday centric, personality driven, consumer into programming. I know a lot of eighty person mega churches. You know, <laughs> a, a lot, a, a lot of, a lot of one hundred and fifty people, and it's Sunday centric, it's personality driven, and it's consumer oriented. So these are deeper, like systemic issues that go into the the heart and the West itself and the Western ethos that I think are harder to root out. So my beef is less with large churches and more with the fact that we only celebrate these types of churches. We don't celebrate other churches enough. And with the kind of that trifecta of Sunday-centric, personality-driven, consumer-oriented, I take great issue with that. And that will just hollow out your soul. And so the the big challenge for, I think, mega churches is to to find their place in the world and to have the right metrics for success. Because when you have everything going well by some of those external metrics, it's really easy to think things are going better than they actually are. So, but when there's a mega church, I just chatted, I won't name him for fear of embarrassing him, but I just chatted to a a Canadian pastor actually of a church of 4,000 people. And man, it just, and I've been hearing amazing things about this church and it's doing all this insanely rad work in the world. And I thought, man, if every mega church was like this, I would think every church would be a mega church. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it was I mean, it's holistic and charismatic and biblical and all culturally engaged. But unfortunately, those are the exception to the rule. You know, it feels like a lot of the time. So when you stepped out of that church and you resigned, can you describe how you were feeling leading up to that moment and in that moment? Like, what were some of the symptoms that kind of said, okay, I can't, I can't live this way anymore? Yeah, I mean, before the moment, it was, those, as I mentioned, those three kind of, there were three layers to it. One was just emotional exhaustion, like just burnout. 
I mean, I literally was so frayed emotionally and exhausted, and I just I could not do another day of 16 hours of meetings, you know? Two was a spiritual crisis, um, not like a crisis of faith, a crisis of spiritual formation, just meaning if the spiritual journey is about growing and maturing into people of love through the healing of our soul and restoration of union with God, then in early on in my journey, kind of through high school, college, I grew up in the church, always been following Jesus since I was a little kid. And through my early 20s, I felt this upward is probably not the right word, but this forward trajectory, like I was mm-hmm. becoming more loving and my my capacity to receive love from God in prayer and to give love to others. I felt like year over year, it was moving forward. And then in my, I don't know, mid-20s, I felt like I just stalled out the moment that hit, you know, kind of all the Enneagram stuff, the like deep ingrained habits of sin in my body and in my genetic code passed down to me, you know, through epigenetics from my great grandfather kind of thing. And the stuff of my culture and the assumptions of my family of origin and my compulsions and my addictions, you know, to whatever, like the moment it hit all of this stuff, it's like all of a sudden the way that I've been following Jesus, the kind of church tradition that I came up in's formula or rule of life, we would not have used that language, but of kind of church on Sunday and read your Bible and do intercessory prayer in the morning and then kind of use willpower, say rely on the spirit, but we don't really know what that means. That just, it no longer, it worked well for a while and then it just stopped working. It's like I hit this concrete ball and I was just banging my head against it. And then as I grew more and more um, exhausted due to the pressures of adult life, of leadership, and now the phone is in my life and I have this whole digital distraction thing I'm, I'm interfacing with, I actually felt like not only was I no longer progressing, I felt like I was regressing. And year over year, I was become more grouchy and critical and angry and exhausted and out of touch with my soul and out of touch with Jesus and unable to like sense God's presence and, and live in the easy yoke. You know, I felt like I was actually going backward, not going forward. And then I realized, and then all of this brought me to, so something about the way that I was following Jesus was not actually leading me forward in the kingdom of God. And that was like a major wake up call for me. And then the, the, deep, the, the deep crisis even below that was kind of an ecclesiological one where I realized, oh no, crap, my church is full of people like me. My church is full of people who had some major wins early on in their healing and salvation and uh, experienced some change into the image of Jesus early on. But then like me, they kind of hit this wall, this like glass ceiling. And they just kind of stalled out and they settled for the kind of quasi Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven nonsense, you know, of low expectations for transformation, where the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6 and 7 was not normative for hardly anybody in our church. And I realized that they were in the same boat as me. It's not that they didn't want to change. um, And it's not that they weren't trying to change. They did want to change and they were trying, if anything, too hard through willpower. It's that they, like me, did not know how to change. So those three things of kind of the emotional crisis of burnout, the spiritual formation crisis of I'm not becoming more like Jesus year over year, and then the ecclesiological crisis of my church is not helping people reach a high level of maturity in Christ. 
those three things all kind of came together. And that's what I was feeling that finally brought me to this, this dramatic kind of like early midlife crisis. I need to change the trajectory of my life. I need to resign from this church. I need to do church differently, my discipleship to Jesus differently, and my emotional and holistic life very differently. So how did that process begin? Like, what did you almost immediately start changing? Or how did you even know what to do? Yeah, I mean, again, it's three steps forward, two steps back, right? And, you know, there are clear kind of before and after moments in the journey, but life is messy and complex, and you can change all of your external stuff, and you're still there, you know? You carry you with you everywhere you go. So, I mean, I think big picture, basically, I kind of, a, it's a long story. To make it short, we were a multi-site church, and um, I was leading three, soon to be four different sites. And basically, I didn't quit. I didn't like abandon the church. I demoted myself. I basically asked if I could go on a sabbatical and then come back and just lead one of those churches. And then over a two-year process, for all good reasons, not like a church split, we each church went autonomous. So basically, I stepped down from leading these three, four churches and 100 people on staff, and I went on a three-month sabbatical. I started therapy. I started Sabbath. I started really leaning into spiritual formation, silence. We moved into walking distance from the church where I could, like, sold my car, just started doing my best to live a very kind of slower, more simplified, more integrated life. And um, then I came back, led our much smaller church right in the city, not small, but much smaller. And um, eventually every church went autonomous. And then it began, you know, that's, that's been six years or so now. And so now it's just been a little over half a decade of trying to simplify my life, slow things down, have different metrics for success, different priorities, you know, both for myself and for the church that I'm a part of. Can we talk about metrics for success? Because you're yeah. right. I think there's a marker change, right? Most of us would say the bigger, the better. Um, as long as everything is up and to the right, we're great. So talk about how your metrics of success have changed. Yeah, well, I mean, I think before, and again, I don't want to add cynicism because it's just really not helpful or in this enough toxicity in our world. So if this is a little cynical, forgive me. But I think previously my metrics were kind of the four, I would not have said this out loud, but I think honestly, if I were to like look at them, they were basically the four, what I call the four B's, butts, budgets, buildings, and buzz. So, Uh you know, butts, how many people are there? You know, and this is through a pastor metric, obviously, Uh, you know, buildings, what's the real estate scenario? Is it cool? Is it urban or is it big? Or is it you own or rent? you know, um, budget, what, how much, what's the giving right now and buzz, like, what are people saying? Is there momentum? Is the church planter word? Is it growing? Are people into it? Or, you know, now that's a very cynical way of people saying all sorts of people are coming to faith and people are having incredible experiences and we're getting amazing feedback and people are being generous and look at this beautiful space we're in. So I don't, I don't want to add cynicism, but I think those metrics are just brutal metrics to live by, live by. I mean, they will just hollow out your soul and, and they're so fickle. And then they tie you to, they, they create a, a constant temptation to compromise as a leader because you need things from people and what you need from, you know what I mean? You need uh-huh. people to come, you need people to give money, you need the building to work out, you need people to say positive things. You need that upward growth curve. And that sabotages prophetic and pastoral leadership. 
because prophetic and pastoral leadership has to go against the flow of culture. It has to be, it has to have a high level of differentiation in psychological language or detachment. You have to be able to do what you know before God is right, even if people will be mad at you, less people will come to your church, people will not give money, you know, because it's the right thing to do to lead people into mm. Christoformity, you know, into Christ likeness. So um, I, th I think there's, those are not good metrics to live by emotionally because they're meritocracy metrics. They're like winners and losers. And at some point, everybody's a loser. That's what people don't realize is no matter how big your church is, there's always one that's bigger or yeah, cooler, yeah. has more sophisticated, famous people in it. Or, you know what I mean? It's such a, it's a fool's errand attempting to achieve inner fulfillment through external success. I mean, whatever your leadership thing is, it is a fool's errand, you know? And we hear that from all the people that become rich and famous and then come back to tell us. And we're like, yeah, but they don't know. What do they know? <laughs> yeah. If I was rich and famous, I would be, you know, if I had a mega church, if I had a best-selling Then book, I would say I the same thing after. But give it to me now. You know, yeah. After it. No, but but I, let let me let me be the exception to the rule, you know. So um so yeah, I don't know if that's if that's getting at it, but that I is think good. What right. are your some of your new metrics? What when you look at your own life or you look at your ministry, what are you like, nah, this is what I got my eye on now? Yeah, and it, again, we've done we've sat down, I remember as an elder team and a staff, we spent like a day, you know, or two, just attempting to like articulate, if those are the old metrics, what are the new metrics? And they're harder to articulate because, I mean, you have things like the fruit of the spirit in Galatians. And the nice thing about the old metrics is you can get most of them in an email on Monday morning. Yeah, You know what I mean? Like, here's yeah. how many people came. You can get the numbers. You can get the raw data. How many people came? Here's what the offering was. Here's how many people, you know, did this on Instagram or whatever. And the new metrics, like if love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithful, self-control, there's no, I don't get an email on Monday morning being like, your church is up in patience 13% due to your <laughs> sermon yesterday. And, and that's part of why, you know, ministry is tricky. And it's why a, a constant temptation for me, I was just reading Alan Fadling's book on leadership. And he just points out that programs are easier to manage than people because they make us feel like we're in control. You know what I mean? Like when you're, when you're a pastor in particular, you can start a program and you feel like I'm in control of this program. You're not actually in control of people, though. And so when you do more people-driven ministry, and I'm not against programs, but when you do people-driven ministry, it's, it's, it's a blow to your ego because you're not in control. And even if you do all the right things, wow. people have free will. And they will, they will do some it's – it's Jesus' parable of the sower. Even if you do ministry the right thing the right way, hmm. you're still going to have all sorts of people that just, nah – shrug it off or really into it. And then the soil is shallow or something comes to take it away, you know? And so geez, I just keep sitting with Jesus parable of the sower to realize I am so not in control of the outcomes of people. And my job is, you know what I mean? And that doesn't mean I don't have responsibility, but that responsibility is more, um, a, a, a mentor said to me recently on parenting, it was actually John Orberg, who I know we have yeah. a, a mutual for. He said, you know, there comes a moment as a parent where you're, you're no longer responsible for, you're responsible to. Um, meaning like when you have a two-year-old, you're responsible for your two-year-old. If you abandon them, they will die. When you have a 22-year-old, you're responsible to them. Like you still have a responsibility to show up, to speak truth, to be there for them, to love them, to stay faithful to them. But you're not responsible for 
whether or not they study for their final exam or for how they spend their money or for whether or not they buy a car that they shouldn't buy, you know, or, and get a car payment or go into debt. Like, you know what I mean? You're responsible to them, but not for them. And there comes that point in the life of a pastor. And I just think I thought I was more responsible for people than I, than I actually was. And it's more of a responsibility too. like, I have a responsibility to show up, to speak truth, to offer spiritual direction, to attempt to model the way of Jesus, to, you know what I mean? To, to guard the, the church, but I can't control these people, nor should I, that's not the way of Jesus is not coercion and control. So that's a very long way of saying, um, it's sorry for that tangent. Uh, feel free to edit that out of the interview. No, it's but, great. It's great, John Mark. I think the new metrics of success are, are Christ likeness at at a big picture, which is harder to measure. So we, you know, there are some things you can measure, like um, you know, the right side of of numbers is baptism. Like we want to be a church where people that are not followers of Jesus and didn't grow up in the church and are from a secular city are coming to faith in Jesus. So we want to measure how many people are at Alpha each you know quarter mm. and how many of those people come to faith and are baptized and how many of those people then end up in a um, community is another thing we measure. So we take, you know, really meticulous records of how many people are in our home communities, which for us is as important or more important than our Sunday gatherings. And, you know, you know, tithing isn't the only marker, but generosity is a key part of the way of Jesus. We want to measure like, are we becoming more generous as people and as a community? So some of these numeric things aren't bad to measure. It's, it's just like what you do with them and how you interpret the data and, and how you hold that at an internal psychological level and spiritual level. How is your life radically different when you look at, because you go into quite a bit of detail in the book about how you treat technology, about um, like you even hinted at it earlier, you sold your car, you're trying to walk places. Do you want to walk us through what, the rhythm in your life looks like now as opposed to how it used to be? Um, yeah, I'm happy to. I just don't want to idealize it. You know, like, I mean, I'm I'm human and life is hard and I have three kids and I live in a city and have a demanding job. And I'm, you know, I'm actively doing everything I possibly know how to do to mitigate against hurry and digital distraction and external metrics of success and ego but I'm a human being in a human culture, you know? So yeah. it's not like, you know, my life before was terrible and now I just sit around and all I, I'm just like the second coming of Dallas Willard or Richard Foster. And I right. just, I just live with perpetual joy and I never get angry or stressed or overwork, you know, uh, none of that's not, that's not remotely true. So, I mean, yeah, my, I, my, my life is radically different. I, I work way less hours, you know, so I probably work 40, 45 hours a week. Um, when I used to work insane hours, um, my mornings are radically different. Um, you know, I, I put my phone, I don't let myself touch my phone most days. Um, if everything goes well till nine 30 in the morning. And so wow. every morning I have several hours to pray, to sit in the quiet. And then I, you know, to read for an hour and to do some deep work. And um, that's been a radical, you know, when I was at the height of that busyness, I didn't have time to read. I barely had any time to pray. My mornings were hurried and stressed. So um, I have some leeway in how I craft my schedule that a lot of people don't have. But um, I have margin in my life now. I have time to read a lot and think and to pray. Um, I'm leading a team now. That's very different for me. And we always, I always had a team. 
everybody wants, you know, you talk about teams, it's so funny. Everybody wants to have a team. Not everybody wants to be on a team. And those are two different things. <laughs> That's you good. know what I mean? Yeah, I have yeah. a team means I'm the boss and I have people, I have minions that I can send out, you know, and make myself feel like I have a, I'm on a team. We're a team-based leadership. I'm like, okay, but do you have a team or are you on a team? Uh. So um, I, I'm on a team and that, that has been radically, that is, and, and I've lost a lot of control due to that. And I've gained a soul through it, you know, because with control comes responsibility and stress and anxiety. And so when you, when you push everything up to one person's shoulders in a business or in a church or in a whatever, it just becomes this crippling level of responsibility that just is an emotional drain, you know? So when you share that load with God and with community, um, a community of leaders that that's made all the difference for me. And, and that's enabled me more and more. And our church is large enough. This is a luxury many churches don't have. Um, so I say this with great humility, but it's enabled me more and more to kind of really attempt to give the bulk of my time to what I'm best at, which happens to be the thing that is least draining for me emotionally too, and most life-giving, you know? So, um, and again, this is not silver bullet. I still yeah. have to do all sorts of stuff I don't want to do and answer email that I loathe and, you know what I mean? All the things. Right. But attempting to do some of these kind of things. So I'm a lot less addicted to my phone. I work a lot less hours. I sleep a lot more. I Sabbath every single week. I have more time for prayer. Um, I'm leading more in team. And life is still hard and messy and it's not utopia. So don't, don't interpret <laughs> it that way, you know? Talk about the shift from leading a team to being on a team, having a team being on a team. What, how is that different for you? Well, you know, when I went on sabbatical, I almost didn't come back. One, yeah. one of the most important things you do on sabbatical, if you ever are graced with that opportunity, is you kind of set everything on the table. And I'm not good at that. I'm, um, you know, I know millennials get, get so much for being so flaky and that is a generational wide problem. I tend to have the opposite problem just by personality, not by virtue, where I'm dutiful to a fault. So I'll often stay in relationships or stay in things longer than is healthy because I have, you know, and it's, it sounds more virtuous than it really is. Some of it's my deep, you know, anxiety about being bad or something, you know, so it's not necessarily virtue. I'm sure there's some virtue in there, but a lot of it's just my personality and my wiring. So I think for me, um, I, I stayed in it for a long time. I was really dutiful. And one of the beauties of sabbatical is you just kind of put, you put every, you take that hat off, you take the duty hat off and you just kind of put everything on the table and say, what is God? Cause every, you know, I thought about this this morning, I'm constantly doing things that are draining me and killing me that God has not asked me to do. They don't have his calling, his favor and his blessing on and, you know, and, and they, but, but they're on the schedule and I said, I would do it. <laughs> know and it's living in, and that's something that's still an open question in my mind you know like what do i do when i feel god is saying you know you're you're not to teach this weekend i just want you to rest but i'm on the teaching schedule uh, what do i do you know and um so I'm, that's an open question I'm, i have no i don't have an answer for that but that's an open question that i'm wondering if i'm missing it on all that to say when I was on sabbatical, I almost didn't come back because I, at the time I felt like a gross failure as a leader. I mean, I just mm. felt like I am the worst leader of all time. I'm a failure as a leader. I couldn't hack it emotionally. I had made a ton of mistakes in leadership and there wasn't some like church split or blow up, but there were a 
bunch of people mad at me, a bunch of, you know, staff that had been hurt by me. I was, I was just such an emotionally unhealthy person. I did not have the maturity to lead a church that size at that age. So I felt like a total failure and I almost didn't come back. And two things happened. You know, one is um, my therapist said to me some of the best advice I'd ever had. He said, if you quit now, you will always feel like a failure and you will always lead from your wound. And he Mm. said, the only way that he said sabbatical will not heal you. It will give you rest. It will give you, you know, a chance to come. He said, the only way you will actually heal from burnout and wounding and the sense of failure is by doing the same thing you used to do differently and in a healthy way with healthy people. And he said, uh, and, and he, and it was some of the best, it was a turning point. some of the best advice anybody had ever given me. Because now we're in the process of basically demoting me again to just teaching elder. And I have another sabbatical coming up. It's been, you know, six years now. So I have another sabbatical coming up in a year. I'm going to go on a nice long break. And when I come back, I'm not going to lead our church anymore. As of, wow. That's the current plan. And I'm not leaving our church. I'll still be there. I'll still be doing most of the things I do best now. But I'm basically demoting myself again seven years later. And now, if I had done that, seven years ago where I almost said, I'm just going to quit and go get a job as a teaching pastor somewhere. I would have felt like a failure for the rest of my life. I would have, I would have led out of wounding and brokenness and failure. And now I feel like I feel all of the healing that needs to happen has happened. I feel whole. I feel healthy. I still think I'm a B minus leader at best, but you know what? I've done the best I know how to do. I feel at peace. And if I change my role in a year, as is the current plan, I feel it's not out of angst or failure or melancholy. It's out of actually a confidence and desire to make my unique contribution to the world in humility, saying, you know, I can't do all these things. Other people can do these things better than me. Let me do what I feel I can do best, you know? So that was a huge thing for me. So coming back from sabbatical, I knew that if I was going to come back and try to lead differently in a different way, I could no longer be one-stop shopping lead pastor. So we took that title off of me and I instantly began, you know, we were a much smaller church at that time. We've grown a little bit since then. So at the time, our staff was tiny. And we just started sharing it. And it was me and Gerald. And then it was me, Gerald, and Bethany. And we just began sharing the load. And, you know, it worked out kind of nicely where I kind of had some skill sets that other people didn't have. So I would kind of, I would, I would offer those skill sets. I would do most of the teaching and I would do a lot of the strategic thinking. And then other people would handle this. And then Bethany would handle the pastoral, you know, like acumen. And, you know, and it's not perfect. And there are things that our church really doesn't do well because I'm not going to try to do everything and be everyone. And so I think for me, it's been um, a slow kind of relearning. I mean, I grew up in a very kind of CEO kind of culture of church leadership. So this has been a very different experience for me. But again, I'm like, I think I'm a B minus leader at best, you know, and I just, I do not, I would never start a leadership podcast. I just, that's not me. I'm, I'm not, I don't have, that's not my authority in life, you know, but I figured, man, all right, maybe, maybe I'm not going to be the best leader of leader of leaders. And I'm not an apostle in biblical language, but you know what, if I can just try to be a Christ-like person who's thoughtful and wise, who leads with humility in community. And when I am with people, just be as present in love as I can. Maybe, maybe God will graciously bless us. And the last five or six years now has been the healthiest, most enjoyable and fruitful leadership team and leadership season I've ever been on in my entire life. 
It's just, it's the best team I've ever worked with. There's no ego in the room. There's no ambition. There's love, humility, community. I've never had a better leadership experience than the last six years. And I take no credit for that. I'm just so grateful. Is it hard for you, John Mark, to take that demotion, as you call it, to reassign yourself? Or has that been easier than most people would think it would be? Um, the first time was really hard because it was just, but it was, it was a death blow to my ego. So it was hard, you know what I mean? And, and it drags up all of your inner insecurities. I mean, I think people assume that leaders are way more confident and secure than they actually are. And we forget that often bravado and self-promotion nine times out of 10 are actually most masking insecurity and shame Mm -hmm. and low self-worth, not the kind of arrogance that we think that it often comes off as, you know? And especially when you're in that position, you know, you face such, you get such praise, but you also face such withering criticism. And you're just like, you feel like a wobblehead, you know what I mean? Like just whipped back and forth between you're the best, you're the worst, you know what I mean? It's kind of devil messiah. And, um, and I, I say that with no self-pity. That's just, that's just the reality of it. I, I do the same thing. We objectify people in leadership. The more in leadership somebody is or the more well-known somebody is, the more we objectify them. We say things about you know uh, Kanye West that we would never say about some worship leader in our church you know, 100%. or whoever, like, because we objectify them. It's like, almost like they're not people. They're an they're a icon. They're an idea. You know? And I'm, I'm not saying I'm that a celebrity at all. I'm just saying there is something with leadership in general where I think that comes in. So it was really hard. It was such a death to my ego, and it exposed all the inner Robert Mulholland, who's dead now, but his little book, Invitation to a Journey, is one of my favorite spiritual formation books. And he, he writes about the levels of sin and the final level down in our spiritual formation, our transformation is what he calls trust structures, which are, Thomas Keating called them, our emotional programs for happiness. They're the things that we look to to feel safe and happy and at peace that don't go by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And, you know, what, what leadership exposes is your trust structures. Hmm. What, what, it, what is it that you look to? And that's where, you know, the, the, the thing that, uh, that I, I, leadership is still really hard for me. One of the things I'm great, I remember saying this to Ortberg once. I would say, man, I, I just want to be a teaching pastor. How do I get out of this, all this leadership stuff? You know, I just want to like write books and, you know, do a podcast with Mark and offer spiritual direction. You know, I don't want to lead. And, um, you know, we were, we were laughing. He had come to Menlo Park and was supposed to just be the teaching guy. But then mm-hmm. the guy that was going to lead it, you know, left and he ended up kind of leading this mega church again. And, you know, he said, I don't really like leadership that much either. He's introverted like me and more bookish. But he said, you know what I really like is growth. And he said, nothing will expose all of your need for growth like leadership. You know, it will just it's throw all of it really will. It's similar to marriage and to family in that it's it, those three things, more than anything else I've ever had in my life, is parenting, marriage, and leadership have just have been that kind of brutal mirror to my soul to expose oh, yeah. all of my junk and throw all of my trust structures in my face and, and show where my flesh and New Testament language comes out, which is then an invitation to meet all of that with Jesus. That'll preach. You know what? My whole life just flashed before my eyes. You're right. It's marriage, parenting, and leadership. That's where how many, I'm like, how many kids? I just have two. So you they're in two? their 20s. Yeah. yeah, they're in their 20s. Okay. And uh, 
But yeah, we've been through the whole thing. And I'm like, yeah, I've never felt more weak. I've never felt more uh, happy. I've never felt more frustrated. It's all the emotions. It's all of the weaknesses. It's like, wow, I really, yeah, I, I really don't have it all together, do I? You know, and yeah. you realize that in all three fields. You become more aware of that. Yeah, as you, as you get older and you become more self-aware, you're actually more mature, but you don't feel more mature. <laughs> no, I just feel it like I really don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, which is yeah. which is true. Let's uh, that, as as, as uh, go ahead, John Mark. What were you gonna say? No, I just I just think I mean no, I, nothing to add to that other than just deep agreement that I think I yeah. thought that by forty I'd kind of have it all figured out, and actually what you figure out is 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 the great mystery of life. You know, there's mm-hmm. that um, is that fa- ah. Uh, Never mind. I'm not even going to say it. I'll mess it up. <laughs> no. Well, I was going to say, listen, from 54 where I'm sitting, it's just, I, I would say if there's one thing, it's that I'm much more comfortable with what I don't know and what I'm not good at. Yes. And that's okay. And it's like, I think I have a clearer understanding of what I don't know and probably will never know and things I'll never be good at. And maybe that's okay. And 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 if you can come... To, you know, and I'm I'm behind you in both age and maturity. But if I think if we can come to a place of peace and acceptance, you know, and integration, you know, and stop fighting that. I mean, that's where, for me, somewhat due to personality, somewhat due to autobiography, and then somewhat due just to stage of life as I'm nearing the second half of life. Everything's turning over for me to just the spiritual discipline of acceptance. You know, mm. like, how do I just accept what is and not roll over and play dead, but, yeah. you know, what Ignatius called indifference or freedom, what, you know, the, the, the French mystics called detachment. How do I just come to that place where uh, I'm blessed and I'm happy because I'm living in the kingdom with Jesus and I'm at peace with my own body and my own story and I've integrated into my personhood and more importantly into who God says I am and who God is in me and who God is. And so, and just making peace to that and coming to a deep place of acceptance, that feels to be the great spiritual challenge of the second half of life. And and so freeing. And so that's why I say nearing this second sabbatical and likely second demotion is profoundly emotionally different. The first one felt like death to self. This next one feels like I'm counting the days. I I can't Uh. wait. I'm, I'm so excited. I just have such peace and freedom and confidence. There'll be moments where my ego will crop up and I'll have this moment of crisis of like, what am I doing? Should I you know, rewind? Yeah. Um, but most of the time, I just feel this deep freedom and confidence that, man, there's no better place to be than just humbly serving God as best I know how. Hmm. You know who seems to have that that uh, persona, that that understanding that you just described is John Ortberg. Did you ever meet oh. Dallas Willard? Did you ever meet no, Dallas? I never I'm did. So no. sad. Yeah. John, yes. I mean, you cannot have a 10 minute conversation with John Ortberg without Dallas Willard coming up. He was so yep. profoundly shaped by him. But you and I get to know John, who is one of the yes. finest human beings I've met. So talk about your yeah, friendship would, with John. That would be my assertion, too. Yeah. I mean, I, there, there's not a ton to report. I just, I, I'd idolized him kind of from a distance through his writings. And, you know, he was mentored by Willard for 20 years. And so Willard has had a greater impact on my worldview than any other teacher or thinker outside of the Bible that I can put fingers on, you know. So just Willard's writings have had a profound impact on 
the way that I that I view the world and, and specifically the way that I have my head around what I think it means to follow Jesus and how it is that we become more like Jesus. So um, Willard naturally led me to Ortberg. And what Ortberg is doing is, you know, um, and I mean this in a positive sense, is popularizing a lot of Willard's framework, which is, yeah. and I mean that as, in a positive sense, because that's what I'm trying to do too. Well, he would say the same thing. I, John would say the yes, same thing. Yes, he'd say the same thing. You know, I think he'd say I'm, I'm Willard for dummies or whatever, which is nonsense. Yeah. I mean, John has a PhD and is blisteringly smart, um, far more than I am. But I'm basically attempting to, I mean, popularize this too, uh, trite of a word, trying to to simplify and synthesize, you know, a lot of Willard's concepts and all that he represents to millennials and post-Christian contexts, because he was working with another generation in a very different cultural context. And um, so I'd, I'd long idealized Ortberg because he does that, and he's such a great writer and such a se- seem like a lovely human being. And so yeah, I had a relational connection. My best friend lives in San Francisco. And I said, like, man, do you do you ever hang out with John Ortberg? And he's like, uh, no. Does he live around here or something? I'm like, you don't know that John Ortberg lives like 30 minutes south of <laughs> Menlo you? Park. How, yeah. He didn't even know. And I was like, you're kidding me. I'm like, all right, you need to like mooch your Bay Area connections and see if you can get the two of us a lunch with him. So he was gracious enough. We got a hold of his email, and you know, the two of us, I, I flew down to my visit my best friend, and the two of us drove down and had lunch with John. And that's just become, anytime I'm in the Bay Area, my buddy and I will go down and he's just gracious. I wouldn't call him a mentor. I wouldn't even call him a friend. I would just say he's been incredibly gracious and present to us and spends time with us and was kind enough to write the forward for my last book. And I mean, it. he is so much better in real life than he comes off online. You know what I mean? And, and I mean, meaning he just, he strikes me as an incredibly integrated kind, joyful, Christ-loving man. And um, so the chance to get to sit with him on a, a couple times a year or whatever it is, is a great honor. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, uh, John and I have spent some time together over the last few years and same thing, loved him from a distance since I was probably your age or younger, and then had a chance to build a friendship with him over the last few years. But we were together last month, sitting out to, after breakfast, looking over the ocean and I asked him, what do you want to do next? Like, what, what's the next 20 years hold for you? Thinking he was going to talk about books or teaching or whatever. And he says, I really want to focus on who I'm becoming. Yeah. Oh, wow. How many people would yeah. you get that answer from? So maybe we can wrap up with this because the title from your book is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And it's a story I think John has written about. He told me, he told you but it's such a powerful story. Do you want to let us know just a little insight into the title behind your book? Yeah, the story. Yeah, the title is based on a line from Willard that comes from a story that um, John has told me and many others, where I, th- I think it was in the late '90s, and John was on staff. Um, I think at Willow, and you know he would have to explain the emotional moment. But to my my understanding is he was just getting sucked into the busyness and exhaustion and all of that of church life, make a church life, Western life. He would have to explain that better than me. And so he calls up Willard out in California and basically says, what do I need to do? You know? And John told me there's a long silence on the other end of the line because John said, quote, with Willard, there was always a long silence, (laughs) meaning he was just notorious for being incredibly unhurried and slow and present and thoughtful. Long silence. And then Willard just said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. That's all he said. 
was quiet again. John wrote it down and said, and said, okay, what else? And then Willard said, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And then he repeated himself, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And um, yeah, when John told me that story and when I've read it since read it in several of his books, it just like struck this deep chord in my soul. Mm-hmm. My mind actually, my prefrontal cortex thought it was kind of ridiculous, you know, like oh, I yeah. live in this crazy, crazy progressive city. And I don't know if you'd asked me like before hearing that, like what's the greatest challenge you face in following Jesus or pastoring a church in Portland? I don't know what I would have said, but not hurry. I would have said something right. about politics or progressive theology or money or income inequality or racism. I don't know what I would have said, but not hurry. It wasn't even on my list. But then I had this equal opposite reaction where like at a gut level, it felt like best analogy I can think of was like a tuning fork. Have you ever, have you ever uh-huh. used a tuning fork like for guitar mm-hmm. or something? You hit it. You know, and, and music theory is fascinating because, like, middle C, it, it was created by God, not by people. Like, it's literally woven into the fabric of creation. There are eight notes in creation. Like, it's woven into the fabric of reality. So what a tuning fork does is it, like, you, you hit it and you feel your bones literally tremor as they come into contact with middle C into, rea- into contact with reality, you know? So yeah. at a gut level, it kind of felt like this tuning fork moment of, like – oh, my soul is like now getting in contact with reality. And I felt this like almost like soul kind of tremor. And I've just sat with that thesis now for half a decade. And it has had a profound effect on my life, on my lifestyle, on my metrics for success, on my Mm. spiritual formation and whom I'm becoming. And, And realizing the depth at which hurry has sabotaged my spiritual formation into a person of love and joy and peace and the degree at which it is just epidemic in our culture yeah. and, um, and, and, and begin and, and celebrate it rather than a fought against. Um, it, it's just, it's had a radical impact on me to the point that I wrote a book cause I love David Brooks's line about how he wants to write his way into a better life. So <laughs> I'm probably the worst person in the, on the world in the world to write a book about hurry i'm like type a chronically impatient you know um or at least i was or i'm i don't know who i am right now i'm in process but man i just it was it was a way for me to write my way into a better life in the kingdom oh i'm gonna remember that david brooks yeah i think that's kind of what i'm doing (laughs) is writing my way into a better life it's all the stuff you're working on (laughs) some would call it hypocrisy others would Uh, say (laughs) no i'm just trying to learn and grow yeah, John Mark, exactly. this has been amazing. Um, Such a chat with you. Thank you for your time. It's it's a it's a joy, and we put up with terrible audio quality. Thank you, Skype, and uh, we survived. It's great on my end. So it's the best Skype interview on my end I've had in months. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. I don't know what we're doing over here, but anyway, uh, I hope next time it's in person. I've benefited greatly from your podcasting, your work, your uh, writing, and. Uh, Tell us a little bit about where people can find you online and then uh, summarize the book again. And obviously they can get anywhere books are sold. Uh, Yeah, you're so kind. The book is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. My name is John Mark Comer, C-O-M-E-R. I have a website that has all the stuff, Instagram for social media, um, whatever. Yeah, do the podcast with Mark. And then I'm at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, which is where most of my teaching is found online.
Well, that was scintillating and challenging and awesome and all of those things. I really like John Mark. His book is great too. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. We have everything for you in the show notes. We have transcripts if you prefer to read. We've been doing that for over a year now. And uh, we also have some episodes on YouTube. This may or may not be there. I don't know whether this one is being uploaded, but we have a whole archive of them and you can find that just by searching Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast on YouTube. And uh, I want to thank ProMedia Fire and also Lifeway with Ministry Grid for sponsoring this episode. They make sure that we uh, bring you this for free every week. You can get 10% off for life by going to promediafire.com forward slash carry. Get media support, web support for a fraction of the price of hiring your own team. And you get my exclusive to ministrygrid.com courses for another week for free. And if you do this in January... Uh, their team will send you a copy of my latest book, Didn't See It Coming as a Gift. So go to ministrygrid.com forward slash carry for that. We got a lot coming up. I'm going to tell you about the winners of our 10 million download giveaway contest in just a moment. Also, a lot of you have been asking about the changing workplace. I've got a course called the High Impact Workplace. It is closed now for registration, but just so you know, it opens on Monday. And this is why I'm so excited about this course, because eight to four doesn't work anymore. And for the next generation, they don't want to show up and sit at a desk, chained to a desk, eight to four. A lot of employers are really struggling. There's a talent war going on. Uh, you can actually get a free download right now by going to thehighimpactworkplace.com, thehighimpactworkplace.com. But Monday, the course opens up for new registration. A lot of you have been asking about that. Coming up on the podcast, we've got Jefferson Bethke. We talk about hustle and hurry. It's kind of like a back-to-back theme on that. Not bad for January. Jenny Allen, Craig Rochelle. Here's an excerpt from my conversation with Jefferson Bethke. We almost, we realized that we were kind of buying this bill of goods that you can call the American dream or you can just call modernization, whatever. But we realized, man, this thing of like, get married at this age, get a house by this age, get a job that you love and that fulfills you. We actually, luckier than most people our age, had gotten those benchmarks, right? A lot of millennials are disenchanted because they're not reaching those benchmarks, right? It's very difficult to maybe buy a house now or this or whatever. But, you know, I was married young, 22. I think I was 22 when we got married, had kids at like 24, 25. We had a home and a job that fulfilled us by mid-20s. That's pretty rare. But yet, even then we were like realizing, oh, so like every step of that benchmark actually made us more frantic and more busy and more hustled and more. Subscribers, you get that absolutely for free. And uh, yeah, wherever you get your podcast, make sure you subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Please leave a rating and review. Really does help the show get noticed by others. And um, yeah, now to something I love to do. One of our company values is err on the side of generosity put our heads together and said, okay, we're going to hit 10 million downloads. This happened about a month or two ago. And what can we do to really honor listeners? And my goodness, I was blown away. We had, I think almost a thousand of you enter and uh, like it was an application for this grand prize. And my team and I read through every application, narrowed it down to 25, and then we picked five winners. And my goodness, some high capacity leaders listen to this podcast. But here are the people who are going to spend a day with me in Nashville, probably this summer. We haven't scheduled it yet. We got to, you know, now align all these schedules, but we're going to do that. Fly in absolutely free. We'll spend a day together, have some meals together, get to know each other and uh, build into each other as leaders. So congratulations to these listeners, Lisa Conlin, Elizabeth Moore, Tommy Kylanen, Jameson Horton, and Brett Club. I'm so excited about hanging out with you guys in Nashville. 
Uh, listeners, hey, when we hit milestones, we celebrate with you. Uh, thank you so much for your generosity in uh, getting the news about the show out. And uh, the fact that we get to do this week after week after week is because of you and for you. So uh, really appreciate this. We've got a great guest list coming up. And thanks so much for listening today. I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.